just just a quick prelude, um, Ankur, because you know, I, I this is my first experience working with the European Society of Cardiology as um, a, a you know a, com- a committee a program committee member, and um, selecting the trials and the randomized and and the late breaking trials is never easy. Um, but for interventional cardiologists, there's always an outpouring of data that comes out, and we have to process them because at the end of the day, they have to impact our practice. And so it was a, a tremendous learning experience for me to uh, during as part of the committee to kind of go over these. And um, that's why I selected these five. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, you know, just before I start this episode, which would be a continuation of where Dr. Parvani left, Purvi Parvani, she discussed some of the trials which came out at the European Study of Cardiology meeting this year. Um, I wanted to share with the listenership that Purvi's episode actually is one of the most downloaded episodes for the year. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of, uh, you know, matching that feat, I could not think of anyone else better than Dr. Alasnag, uh, Mirvat Alasnag, and I apologize, Mirvat, if I'm mispronouncing your name, but Dr. Alasnag is the director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratories at King Fahad Armed Medical Forces um, Hospital in Saudi Arabia and is an international brand, as I was telling her, in the field of cardiac interventions, you know, if not cardiovascular medicine, and, uh, you know, is is a face that represents women in cardiology, um, women of color in cardiology, and and also, you know, um, ethnicity and diversity. So she holds a very special place within the cardiovascular disease community, at least for me. And it's it's truly my honor and privilege to have her as a guest on Parallax. So Mirvat, thank you and welcome on the show. Well, thank you for having me and um, thank you for this wonderful in, uh, introduction. Um, it's more than what I deserve, certainly. Um, but uh, the other thing I want to thank you for is your podcast and your theories. Um, I've lift, listened to many of them and they're very um, easy to follow and um, very educational. Um, so it's just um, something to congratulate you for um, at the start of this meet, uh, our session today. Um, and, and hope you continue to register a lot more success in your future um, episodes. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks a lot for your wishes. Um, so diving right in, because we have a lot to cover here, Mirvat. Um, you picked um, five trials, uh, which were all presented and published at the European Society of Cardiology meeting earlier this year. It was a virtual meeting, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. Uh, sort of, We've sort of all transitioned to our virtual lives, but, you know, Regardless, I think the science has moved forward. Um, let's start by talking about StopDapt2, which is one of the trials that you picked. Yeah, so, um, you know, just, just a quick prelude, um, Ankur, because, you know, I, I this is my first experience working with the European Society of Cardiology as, um, a, a, you know, a, com- a committee, a program committee member. And um, selecting the trials and the randomized and, and the late-breaking trials is never easy. Um, but for interventional cardiologists, there's always an outpouring of data that comes out, and we have to process them because at the end of the day, they have to impact our practice. And so it was a, a tremendous learning experience for me to uh, during as part of the committee to kind of go over these. And um, that's why I selected these five. The first was the STOP-DAPT trial. 
Now, this comes at the heels of other trials, similar trials, and I think it's important not to interpret trials, um, you know, in, 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 in isolation or in a vacuum. It's important to understand where they come from. So the STOP DAPT1 trial uh, actually looked at um, cobalt chromium uh, eluding stents, uh, three-month DAPT, abbreviated DAPT, it was conducted in Japan. Uh, over 1,500 patients were involved, were enrolled, and um, three-month DAPT and a composite of MI stroke and stent thrombosis uh, was reported, and it uh, appears it's safe to have an abbreviated DAPT. Followed by STOP DAPT2, again conducted in Japan, um, they abbreviated the uh, DAPT to one month and enrolled about 3,000 uh, patients. Again, the similar composite endpoints of MI, uh, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, and stent thrombosis. And for the primary endpoint, they, they registered non-inferiority and superiority. For the secondary endpoint, um, they registered non-inferiority but not superiority for the secondary endpoint of bleeding. But only 38% of those enrolled were patients with acute coronary syndrome. And this is where this trial comes in, which is stop DAPT2 ACS trial. They looked at one month dual antiplatelet therapy followed by clopidogrel monotherapy in patients with acute coronary syndrome. And in order to, um, you know, have enough power to uh, uh, register uh, results, they actually pulled uh, the ACS patients from STOP DAPT2, about 1,148 patients, and added them to uh, new patients that were enrolled, 2,988 for a total of about 4,136. And one-month DAPT uh, with aspirin and clopidogrel, followed by clopidogrel, clopidogrel alone, randomized, one-to-one -one randomization, 12-months DAPT, aspirin, and clopidogrel. And the primary outcome, a composite of cardiovascular uh, outcomes and bleeding outcomes at one year, um, was 3.2 for the abbreviated one-month DAPT and 2.8 uh, for the 12-month. Uh, and it was the p-value was 0 0.06 for the non-inferiority. For the major secondary endpoints, um, which included um, bleeding as well, it was 2.7 and 1.8 respectively for the um, one-month DAPT as opposed to 12 months, and 0.5 and 1.1 uh, for the um, to me major and minor bleeding. So one-month DAPT followed by clopidogrel monotherapy failed to achieve non-inferiority for a net clinical benefit compared with standard 12-month DAPT in ACS. And there was a trend to lower um, toward an increased cardiovascular events despite a reduction in major bleeding. And so that kind of warrants that we stop and, and you know, think it over the abbreviated DAPT, particularly in patients who have acute coronary syndrome. So they're not all the same. So if I'm treating chronic coronary syndrome and considering DAP, uh, abbreviated DAPT, um, the stop DAPT doesn't apply to that category of patients. But if I'm talking about ACS, Yes, I should think twice about abbreviated DAPT. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a great summary. So let me just ask you, in your own contemporary practice, and you know, this is this is sort of something that applies to my practice also. Um, I've, I've and you know, we have data for this. So I've started saying in my notes, you know, in my post CATS, post PCI notes, I, I definitely say un uninterrupted dual antiplatelet therapy for at least three months. And, you know, if, if I'm using ticagrelor, uh, I say aspirin and ticagrelor. Then, uh, you know, there's data which, you know, is from the other trial not presented at, at this meeting. But uh, there's there's data, there's published data that you have uh, the option of ticagrelor monotherapy that is efficacious in patients with ACS. And now you've got STOP-DAP2 with abbrevi abbreviated DAPT strategies in patients with acute coronary syndrome. Um and then you've got patients who have stable CAD or chronic coronary syndromes. So there is a spectrum here. There is a there is a spectrum of disease states that we see here. So in your practice, if you're using ticagrelor is the P2Y12 inhibitor of choice for DAPT, what is the recommended strategy that you follow in ACS patients? That's question one. And then question two is if you're if you're using clopidogrel bisulfate as your P2Y12 inhibitor of choice in DAP strategies, what is the strategy that you follow in, in your patients with ACS? And then I'm going to follow up and request you to extrapolate the 
the same questions for the stable CAD population. Right. So for um, ACS patients, I think when we do uh, look at the guidelines, they do recommend, uh, you know, the guidelines have shortened it from one month to six months and so on. But the key is to look at not just ACS and the presentation of the patient, but to look at their bleeding risk. So if these are high bleeding risk patients from the get-go or they're not. Um, and I think it is important, you know, by default, we also know from, from several trials that bleeding is associated with higher mortality as well, overall mortality. Um, and so for my my patients, I do try to keep the DAPT abbreviated, whether it is with ticagrelor or clopidogrel. Um, and I think it's important to understand that patients at discharge, events may happen post-discharge. And so when I see them again, even if I have planned three months of dual antiplatelet, and I need to revisit that at three months or at one month, uh, if they've had an event in, in the interim, if it's a bleeding event, uh, then I certainly would want to abbreviate it from three months down to one month. If they had an ischemic event of the sorts, then I don't want to abbreviate it. So I think my I don't want to confuse the listeners, but what I do want to say is that it has to be a continuous decision that we revisit every time we see our patient. Has anything changed? Is the patient's bleeding risk the same as when I cast the patient and planned three months for ACS uh, of dual antiplatelet. If it is the same, then I continue as planned three months and then monotherapy. Um, if anything has changed, then I either reduce the um, dual antiplatelet therapy regimen to one month and continue with monotherapy. Uh, if they've had a bleeding event, if they've had an ischemic event, then I consider extending it longer uh, than three months. And then moving on to your second question, which is for stable coronary disease patients. Um, again, uh, what I would do, and I think there's some reference from other trials where, you know, I'm, I still don't have the courage to do that, where, you know, one week of dual antiplatelet and upon discharge uh, or later on, you know, you can um, continue monotherapy. So I generally would give one month of dual antiplatelet for stable disease and non-complex coronary interventions, meaning bifurcations, uh, rotablators, et cetera. Uh, and then continue with monotherapy thereon. Um, but again, similar to ACS patients, I, I think it is critical that we revisit it every single time. Yeah, and then you you mentioned something which is which is important. I think it's an important decision to be made at the bedside or when evaluating the patient at discharge, and that is how do you ascertain their bleeding risk? What are some of the tools that you use to ascertain their bleeding risk? So I think, you know, there's several um, score, scores that are available, you know, the Hasblad score, the Paris score, et cetera, um, that, that, you know, depends what your comfort level is and what you're um, used to and what your institution has adopted. Um, a lot of them are very similar. Um, you know, you look at the age of the patient, you look at if they've had any uh, recent bleeding, any requirement for transfusion, GI bleeds, uh, stro hemorrhagic strokes, etc. Anemia, if they require uh, oral anticoagulation for whatever reason, uh, and you look at those. Um, and that's how we kind of determine the um, score of the patients, their, their bleeding risk. Um, what is interesting, though, and, and what is important is that we remember we're clinicians at the end of the day and that all these scores um, have a significant intersection. Um, a lot of the factors that we think render patients at high risk of bleeding also render them high risk for ischemic events. So age, for example, um, prior strokes, etc., cetera, uh, chronic kidney disease, um, there's significant overlap between the two scores. And so um, at the end of the day, we need to be clinicians and see the, and individualize it to the patient in front of us. And even for that individual patient, I can't stress enough, is to revisit it every time uh, we have a clinical encounter with our patients. Excellent. Uh, well, excellent summary. So moving on, uh, the, the second, and, you know, by the way, I, I, want, I want to congratulate you on, on being, uh, you know, such a representation and force as part of the committee. Uh, to pick these trials and also to pick these trials for this uh, um, iteration of the podcast, because like you said, these are important data and these are data which are both practice informing and practice changing. So I think it's important for us as clinicians to to stay on top of these data and sort of, you know, implement them as we see our patients in clinics in the cath labs in the hospital. So, so thank you for, for, for the service, for all, for all that you've done for the, cardiovascular community. So moving moving forward, um, 
Let's talk about the Tomahawk trial, which you know, I think is an interesting name. But again, something we uh, encounter commonly as interventionalists uh, in our practice. Do you want to uh, you know, talk more about uh, the Tomahawk trial? Yeah, sure. So um, the Tomahawk trial, and, and just again, um, you know, we, we have to interpret everything in the context of clinical practice. So um, what is currently happening? Patients who have an outside of hospital cardiac arrest, as soon as they are rushed to a, uh, to a hospital, as soon as circulation is established and they're, uh, you know, rushed to a hospital, um, the practice has been pressure on interventional cardiologists to take them immediately to the cath lab. So the Tomahawk trial, the objectives of it was whether Im- to look at whether immediate coronary angiography for treating or ruling out an acute coronary syndrome as the reason for the cardiac arrest or outside of hospital cardiac arrest. Um, and so they looked at these patients who, who are survivors of outside of hospital cardiac arrest without an, an ST elevation MI. And they wanted to see if rushing and randomizing them, again, one-to-one randomization, uh, immediate coronary angiography, plus minus PCI, or an initial intensive care unit assessment with delayed or selective angiography uh, as need be. Um, and they wanted to see if that would result in uh, a reduction in all-cause mortality at 30 days compared um, with an initial um, immediate uh, uh, coronary angiography. And they enrolled any patient over the age of 30 with successful resuscitation after an outside hospital cardiac arrest with possible cause. So they had um, non-ST elevation MI on EKG, and they had either a shockable or a non-shockable rhythm. They had over 550 patients. The, as I mentioned, the primary outcome was all-cause mortality at 30 days, and um, early angiography was not superior to a a more delayed strategy. So the um, all-cause mortality at 30 days was 54% uh, for immediate angiography, and it was 46% for the delayed or selective approach um, with a p-value of 0.058. So there's really no difference in the primary endpoint. Uh, and th- it was very similar with for the pre-specified subgroup of those who were shockable and non-shockable rhythms. So even those with shockable rhythms, if you choose, um, you know, to evaluate them better, stabilize them, perhaps start uh, uh, hypothermia and so on, and then do angiography, um, the results were very similar. The secondary endpoint, all-cause death or severe neurologic deficit at 30 days, again, was more frequent in the immediate uh, angiography group compared with the uh, delayed. And so overall, early angiography and outside of hospital cardiac arrest without ST elevation MI, it was not superior. And I think it's very important because it relieves the pressure from um, interventional cardiologists to just rush, 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 and uh, requires that we just evaluate patients. We evaluate them. Could it be something else, particularly that these are non-ST elevation MIs? So could it be pulmonary embolism? Could it be anything else? Or could it, yes, in fact, be an acute coronary syndrome, a ruptured plaque somewhere, and they benefit? But no harm in stabilizing the patient, their hemodynamics, their respiration, and so on first. Yes, yeah, so, you know, personally, I was um, also pleased with the findings of this trial, and it's something which resonates my own practice clinically. And that is that if there is ROSC, which is, you know, return of spontaneous circulation, and if there's no acute current of injury on the electrocardiogram, um, no ST elevation, then I tend not to take these patients, you know, pending, you know, other things, right? Um, ascertainment of neurological recovery, um, you know, whether whether or not they require targeted temperature management, which we know interferes with, um, you know, how effective dual antiplatelet therapy is in case they need uh, percutaneous coronary intervention. Um, so I, you know, I, I was sort of, um, you know, both relieved and, and and happy that that's what the the randomization showed because it sort of resonated with with how, you know, most of us practice um, cardiac interventions, um, you know, here at the at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, elsewhere also. I think what this is going to do going to force the a conversation between the interventional cardiologists and the critical care experts very early on. Uh, and I think that's important um, because, you know, when the patient, these kind of patients uh, are, are delivered to hospitals or transferred to hospitals, they're rushed into the cath lab and the conversation happens in retrospect. I think what it does is it starts the conversation early with our critical care colleagues. And it also starts the conversation with the family early. 
when these kind of patients are rushed to the cath lab, we end up speaking to the family in retrospect. Uh, this is what we found on angiography. We're looking for another cause. We're not sure that the, this anatomy explains what happens, etc. But it helps us start this conversation both with the family and the critical care cardiologist. Function as one team, come up with one, you know, um, multidisciplinary plan, and honestly uh, figure out futility, uh, prognosis, etc., uh, in a more controlled environment. And I think that is important to set those kind of expectations for family in these very critically ill patients. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so moving on, uh, Mirvad, the next trial that you picked is is an area of of personal interest, you know, it has been an area of, of clinical investigation for me personally. Um, and that is, um, you know, utilization of DOAX in patients with prosthetic heart valves. Here, we're talking about a special population. We're talking about patients who undergo transcatheter valve implantation, so TAVI, um, so these are patients with aortic stenosis, and not uncommonly, as you know, uh, these patients have atrial fibrillation as one of their comorbidities, or if atrial fibrillation happens following the procedure. And then it becomes a conundrum, you know, whether they should be on dual antiplatelet therapy, single antiplatelet therapy, dual antithrombotic therapy, whether should, they should be on warfarin, should they be on DOAX. So we have a lot of options. There is no clinical answer, which is supported by a randomized clinical trial. The one trial which was done in patients without AF showed that single antiplatelet therapy is as good as dual antiplatelet therapy in these patients. You know, we've published meta-analyses on this topic. Uh, so this comes uh, at a great time when th- there is definitely an unmet need for answering this question. And um, the, the results were presented by Dr. Dangus. Uh, first author is Dr. Nick Van Meegum, who all of us know, uh, published in the Union Journal of Medicine. Uh, congratulations to all the authors. You want to discuss the results of this trial. It's called Envisage Tavi AF, published in the New England. Absolutely. And I, and I just want to kind of catch on something you mentioned um, a moment ago, which is, you know, AF is not uncommon in patients with, uh, atri- with uh, aortic stenosis, severe aortic stenosis undergoing TAVI. In fact, you know, the, the, the incidence is, or prevalence, I'm sorry, ranges from 20 to 40%. Uh, of the patient population that's being treated with TAVI. And so it is important that we address it. And it seems to me that the technology and the procedure itself has taken huge leaps. And yet the antithrom- the ideal antithrombotic regimen um, has lagged behind or the evidence for it has lagged behind uh, and hasn't taken uh, as, as fast uh, steps in terms of generating the evidence. So the Envisage TAVI, again, comes at the heels of two other trials. One was the Galileo trial, which looked at low-dose uh, rivaroxaban and unfortunately was terminated early because of higher events uh, in, these, in this patient population. And the events were actually, um, they, they gave 10 milligrams daily of rivaroxaban and there were higher risk, higher events in terms of death, thromboembolic complications, and also bleeding compared to antiplatelet-based regimen. Um, so the other trial was the Atlantis trial, uh, where they looked at patients who have oral anticoagulation, who were oral, had an indication for oral anticoagulation, such as atrial fibrillation, and um, ended up getting a pixaban for those patients, five milligrams BID compared with uh, dual antiplatelet. Uh, pixaban was not superior. There was a concerning signal to higher events in those with or requiring oral with an indication for oral anticoagulation in the uh, dual the DOAC arm, and so it it warrants further exploration. Um, but for patients who cannot tolerate vitamin K antagonists, the conclusion of that trial, the Atlantis trial, was to go ahead and, and give a pixaban. So the Envisage trial was actually a very respectable trial. It was um, looked at 14 countries across three continents, um, seven, 173 medical centers, over 1,400 patients were enrolled, and they were randomized to edoxaban and uh, vitamin K antagonists, which were started either between 12 hours and five days after a successful uh, TAVR implant. And they followed up these patients for an average of 18 months. The primary efficacy endpoint was a composite of adverse clinical events for all-cause death, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, systemic thromboembolization, valve thrombosis, and major bleeding. Um, And, you know, looking at it in terms of non-inferiority, 
the edoxaban arm uh, for the composite adverse clinical events for the primary efficacy endpoint was 17.5 uh, and 16.5 for the VKA arm. The primary safety endpoint incidence of major bleeding um, was 9.7 for the edoxaban arm and 7.0 uh, for the vitamin K antagonist arm. Uh, higher risk of major bleeding in the um, edoxaban arm versus VKA arm mainly driven by GI bleeding. The secondary analysis, patients who required a downward dose adjustment and those not prescribed an oral antiplatelet therapy had similar rates of major bleeding compared with the vitamin K um, antagonist group. And so edoxaban was non-inferior to warfarin and any of its analogs to adverse clinical events in patients with atrial fibrillation after successful TAVI. Um, but the incidence of major bleeding was higher with the edoxaban arm compared to vitamin K. And so the prevalence of pre-existing or new onset AF um, warrants, you know, a, a lot of caution when we're uh, considering what kind of regimen we want to start. Uh, and there's not a whole lot about its, the efficacy of direct acting oral anticoagulants versus VKA, aside from these three trials that we mentioned, looking at all three uh, different DOACs, meaning edoxaban in this trial, the Envisage TABI AF, um, Galileo for rivaroxaban, and Atlantis in uh, for apixaban. Um, the only other concern, and I'm not sure if you do it routinely in your center, um, Ankara, is looking at, you know, leaflet um, restricted mobility and looking at um, thickening. We know from the Galileo 4D and we also know from the Atlantis uh, sub-study looking at CTs of patients who had TAVI procedures that those who received the direct oral anticoagulants actually had less thickening and less um, restriction of mobility. But there was very little clinical correlation now, to, to my understanding, this trial, the Envisage TAVI, did not have an arm that actually looked at uh, a CT uh, sub-study that looked at thickening and so on. Um, but I think that is another area that we need to explore more. Um, uh, and, I'm, and, and I'm not sure if what you do in your practice. So if somebody does come with clinically, um, you know, higher gradients across the newly implanted valve, uh, and you see um, thickening and, and halt, as they call it, um, leaflet thickening and restricted mobility, do you change, convert them from antiplatelets to um, oral anticoagulants? Because that is what we do at our center. Nevertheless, the evidence and the clinical correlation is very, very limited. Yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's, that's the vexing question, right? And actually, what I do is I, 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 tend to, I prefer to put them on, on warfarin. Um, because, you know, I'm not convinced that any of the DOACs have shown, um, you know, convincing. I mean, you're right, you know, non-inferiority, uh, which now has, was, was shown in, with, with Edoxaban and also with, with Apixaban, uh, but not with Rivaroxaban. And with Apixaban, for some reason, there was a signal toward increased non-cardiovascular mortality in those patients uh, in, in the Atlantis trial. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm still on the fence and not convinced that, you know, oral anticoagulants are the way to go in patients with prosthetic heart valves. We certainly know that that, that, that they're not safe in patients with mechanical valves. Their use is off-label in patients with bioprosthetic valves, and I'm talking about surgical valves. So now uh, we have a lot of patients, a lot of patients, over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients with transcatheter heart valves. And, you know, as we've both discussed earlier in the show, that AFib is a common comorbidity. And I sort of struggle with, with the decision uh, making, quite frankly. But what I do is if there is evidence for increased gradients on follow-up transthoracic echo, or if for some other reason we've, we've decided to obtain a, a CT scan and, uh, you know, that shows any evidence for either leaflet thickening or restriction of motion, you know, Halt and Ham, as, as the literature calls it, I tend to put these patients on warfarin, um, you know, and because I, I feel that that is just the safest way to go for our patients. Um, and I know there's, there's, there's lack of, you know, hard clinical outcome data, as you've mentioned. Um, and I, I, I can tell you that across the spectrum of practitioners at our institution, that practice is not uniform or standard. Um, 
You know, for example, if someone is on pre-existing oral anticoagulant, a DOAC, and gets uh, gets transcatheter heart valve, you know, the, there's a likelihood that he or she's going to get discharged on DOAC with or without aspirin. Now, is that backed by sufficient safety data? I'm not certain. Um, yeah, and, and, and I agree with you. I think um, we, I would follow lead uh, of the surgeons because that is what they do with bioprosthetic valves. They put them on uh, a short time of warfarin uh, or vitamin K antagonists. And I think uh, until we have more concrete evidence, that's probably the way to go if we detect an increase in gradients um, or, uh, you know, um, realm or halt on our patients. And uh, I think it becomes particularly difficult to make a decision in patients who have an indication for antiplatelet. Um, for example, patients who have prior stents and so on. Uh, and so you you have to kind of evaluate these patients. And we were talking moments ago uh, about the um, evaluating the risk of bleeding in our patients. And so patients who have a TAVR valve and have stents, uh, and an indication for oral anticoagulation, it becomes very difficult to make the decision to go with only a DOAC and no antiplatelet or just, uh, you know, an antiplatelet and no oral anticoagulation and so on. So the the, the um, decision becomes even more complicated uh, and, again, requires a lot of individualized uh, um, risk scoring. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, these decisions are, for the most part, individualized, you know, to patients and uh, depends on how they've done with follow-up. Now, you know, I'm not saying that these should be generalizable. I mean, a lot of the patients actually do just fine with DOACs on board. So I don't want the listeners to go, you know, to go home with the message that DOACs should not be used in, in the TAVI population. That's not what I was trying to say. The only thing that I was trying to say was that, you know, we, we're still learning about these agents in patients with prosthetic heart valves. And, you know, not every patient is, is the same. Um, so, you know, our index of suspicion should be high um, if there is an abnormality documented on echo or CT and our threshold for transitioning to a to warfarin or a more traditional oral anticoagulant, you know, um, like you were saying, uh, how, the, how the surgeons practice, you know, should be lower. That's all I was saying. Um, so moving forward, uh, the next trial that you've picked for us is RIPCOR2. Again, uh, something we commonly encounter in the cat lab is extremely relevant to our practice. So why don't why don't you tell us about the background, the rationale for conducting a study like this, and what the investigators found? I believe the primary investigator was Dr. Curzon. So after the complete study, um, we now know that we really should be looking at vulnerable plaques and not just percent stenoses. And we know that we don't want to just treat the culprit vessel. We want to do complete revascularization in our patients. And so um, the FLOWER MI study that was published in July in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at FFR guiding multivessel PCI. And unfortunately, that trial, um, the conclusions was that in STEMI, in patients undergoing revascularization, an FFR guided strategy did not have a benefit over angiography guided strategy with respect to death, MI, or urgent revascularization at one year. Um, but this trial was fairly different. The trial, um, the uh, Ricardo uh, Ripcord two, sorry, it, it didn't look just at STEMIs or acute coronary syndromes. It, it was, you know, they cast a much much wider net, which I think confused um, us as interventional ca cardiology community. And um, what they did is they took anybody undergoing a coronary angiography for investigation, whether it was for chest pain evaluation, uh, angina, non-STMI, what have you. They did FFR on all vessels that they could perform FFR on with a stenosis of more than 30%. And they enrolled over 1,100 patients and randomized them to angiography alone and uh, systemic pressure wiring uh, after uh, uh, angiography, so FFR of all vessels. And their objectives, the objectives of the trial is, you know, to examine whether systemic FFR assessment of all relevant arteries at the diagnostic angiogram provides superior source utilization, so cost efficacy, quality of life, and clinical outcomes compared with angiography alone. 
and they evaluated these at one year. So when they looked at cost, FFR plus angiography, um, you know, it was no better than angiography alone. It was not cost saving. Uh, when they looked at quality of life, whether they looked at it from the Euro Quality of Life Survey questionnaire or the Canadian Vascular Society scale, there was no difference between the two groups uh, looking at quality of life and angina status. When they looked at the, that was the co-primary outcomes for the pre-specified secondary endpoints, clinical events, be it all-cause mortality, non-fatal stroke, non-fatal MI, and unplanned revascularization, again, there was no difference. And so... Um, Overall, adding systemic FFR to angiography didn't reduce cost, didn't improve quality of life, didn't uh, add to the final decision making, uh, and didn't reduce major adverse cardiovascular events or future revascularization. And I think the problem here is that they it wasn't very realistic, and it did not replicate what we do in real life. Um, and I don't, and I think it tried to answer too many questions in one study. So, you know, you, you, it's very difficult to lump chest pain, angina, acute coronary syndrome, all in one trial. And certainly, you know, doing physiologic or functional testing in lesions of less than 30%, you know, or more is a little bit of a stretch. That's my interpretation. Um, Perhaps revisiting, um, you know, the role of FFR in um, stable disease alone, perhaps revisiting it, um, you know, in future trials with acute coronary syndromes outside the setting of STEMI, I, I don't know uh, if we would have found a, a difference. What I do know is that when we're looking at complete revascularization, um, Imaging seems to yield results that could guide us. So when we look at the complete OCT substudy, for example, um, they did find that patient, that, that lesions that were significantly stenotic with vulnerable features, that, you know, uh, thin capped fibroatheromas and so on, um, there was a benefit in revascularize, revascularizing those with reduction in future events. It was very small study. Perhaps it needs to be, um, you know, replicated in larger randomized trials where we're using OCT or even IVIS uh, to examine these patients. How we can kind of, um, you know, merge functional data and imaging data to determine which patients benefit from complete revascularization, I personally still don't know. Um, and certainly the role of Physiology has been a little disappointing for me as a clinician. And I'm not going to say disappointing. Perhaps the word, the correct word is frustrating because none of us want to be just putting stents randomly in patients with stable disease or chronic coronary syndrome. And many of us do want to be evaluating some of these borderline lesions with physiology. I don't think the RIPCORD 2 trial helped in that respect. Um, what are your thoughts, uh, Ankur, on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, you know, personally for me, I think I reserve FFR to just, like you said, patients with stable coronary disease. I don't think I sort of extrapolate the validity or the findings of FFR in patients with an acute coronary syndrome, you know, whether, and that, that involves the entire spectrum of acute coronary syndrome, you know, whether it's unstable angina, whether it's non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, certainly in patients with ST elevation myocardial infarction. I mean, I think in patients with STEMI, um, you know, complete revask. We have a lot of trials. We have a lot of data. I think that's the that's the strategy in those patients to move forward. Um, I think it's um, it's it's just um, a little different uh, when it comes to patients with stable disease. And you know, I think that's where uh, the value of FFR holds for me as a practicing interventionist. Um, I I agree with you. I think these are separate patients and these are separate patient populations and these are separate pathophysiological mechanisms. Um, you know, when, when we're talking about the, uh, the underlying substrate for these patients, uh, you know, certainly the ones with acute coronary syndrome um, have a higher event rate, uh, have, an, have, a, have a higher annualized event rate. And I think completeness of revascularization based on imaging and based on plaque vulnerability makes 
a lot more clinical and physiological sense to me as a practicing interventionalist compared with, for example, FFR to the point that I have stented lesions with unstable plaque, even though the FFR was, was normal. Um, and I know there are more data accruing. I mean, they're randomized data accruing for, for this practice, for the statement that I just made. But, you know, clinically, it just makes sense that that's the right thing. I mean, why would you leave a vulnerable plaque, um, which has declared itself, you know, so to speak, um, unrevascularized only to expose the patient to downstream events in the in the ensuing one year? Don't you agree? Would you, would you agree with that, Mirvat, or...? No, I absolutely 100% agree with you. And I think the RICORD-1 trial was on target because what they did is they, they didn't really confuse patients. They didn't confuse the cohort that they were evaluating. Um, they just took patients with stable chest pain who underwent coronary angiography for whatever indication and then did FFR on these patients. And what was interesting is that 26% of the patients who had FFR had a change in the strategy in the plan of care uh, after doing the FFR. And that is ultimately what we want. We, we as interventional cardiologists want a tool that will guide us in making the appropriate decision for our patient. So will they benefit from a stent and then the insuant dual antiplatelet therapy, or am I subjecting them to unnecessary exposure to dual antiplatelet therapy uh, and they don't actually need it? And, and, you know, we want it as a tool that, that helps us reach that decision. But I think um, the, the, Record two was a little too ambitious, and they ended up um, enrolling more than the trial could handle. Um, albeit, it was a very elegant analysis that they did for cost efficacy um, in this trial. But um, again, I think perhaps the results would have been different had they been very selective in which case patients they enrolled. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So moving on, and this is um, this is the concluding trial for for the episode. And thanks again, Mirvat, for doing this for, for us at such a short notice. Um, just summarizing all the interventional trials that were presented at ESC. And, you know, personally, a huge congratulations to you. I mean, I think as if a clinician, investigator, and a physician scientist, there isn't a better high, if you will, than to be an author on a New England Journal of Medicine paper. So this is what this trial is for you. So congratulations, and I'm, I'm very happy for you. Thank you so much, Ankur. Um, so this is the master DAPT trial, and um, it really is my first such experience um, being just a regional uh, PI for this um, randomized trial. Um, and, and it's very interesting because um, I was just telling my colleagues the other day that while we were enrolling in the master DAPT, it was very easy because, you know, the trial randomized patients for me and I didn't have to think. Uh, now that the trial is over and I'm, I have these patients, it's time to stop and think uh, of, of what, how to treat them. Uh, and, and I'm most grateful for the, um, you know, central PIs for giving me this opportunity. And it was, it was tremendous learning uh, to kind of be both an investigator and a clinician. The Master DAPT trial was the purpose of it or the objective was to assess whether one month of dual antiplatelet therapy preserved the benefit with respect to cardiovascular events while mitigating bleeding outcomes compared with the longer uh, regimens uh, in patients with high bleeding risk. And um, the design was a non-inferiority uh, with sequential superiority testing. <clears throat> now, the importance here is that we don't have a lot of the trials that we discussed, including the trial um, you know, that we discussed earlier today, the STOP-DAPT, uh, STOP-DAPT-2, and STOP-DAPT-ACS, the SMART Choice trial, and so on. Those were not directed to high bleeding risk patients, but the master DAPT was. And so um, they in we enrolled patients who had either acute or chronic coronary syndromes who had high bleeding risk and underwent PCI in any of the coronary arteries with a biodegradable polymer uh, serolimus eluting stent. Um, and then patients were uh, from 30 countries, over 4,500 patients, and they were randomized, one-to-one -one randomization. And the randomization with the median of 34 days after the PCI, either to an abbreviated DAPT or a standard DAPT regimen. Uh, abbreviated, immediately discontinuing DAPT and continuing single antiplatelet therapy until the study was completed, uh, except for those receiving um, clinically indicated oral anticoagulation 
who continued single antiplatelet for up to six months after the PCI. And then the standard was the APT for at least five additional months, that is a total of six months after the PCI. Uh, and again, or for those receiving clinically indicated oral anticoagulation for at least two additional months um, and continuing thereafter with a single antiplatelet. And um, what we, you know, what, what I'm most proud of in this trial um, is the completion of the trial and the follow-up period happened during the COVID era. And despite that, we were able to achieve a 99.3% follow-up for these patients um, of at least 335 days. So the primary net adverse clinical events was a composite of all-cause death, MI, stroke, and major or clinically re relevant non-major bleeding. Um, and abbreviated DAPT was found to be non-inferior to standard DAPT, 7.5% compared with 7.7%. Um, in terms of major adverse cardiac and cerebral events, composite of all-cause death, MI, and stroke, again, abbreviated DAPT was non-inferior to standard DAPT, 6.1% uh, and 5.9% for the standard um, regimen. In terms of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding occurring between randomization and the 335 days uh, defined uh, with, as a BARC type 2, 3, or 5 bleeding, again, abbreviated DAPT was not only not was not only non-inferior, but it was actually superior to standard DAPT at 6.5% for the abbreviated regimen and 9.4% for those, um, you know, the standard regimen. And another publication um, just came out as well, uh, oral, uh, you know, looking at a sub-study of those who were on oral anticoagulation for whatever indication. And those also had uh, similar uh, results where basically the net uh, clinical benefit, um, there was no worsening of net clinical benefit in terms of ischemic risk, uh, and there was certainly um, lower uh, bleeding risk in those patients. And so I think that helps guide us that, you know, in, in high bleeding risk patients, I think what this tells me is that I can safely uh, reduce the dual antiplatelet regimen in these patients. Some of the questions that came up, is it unique to this particular type of stent, you know, this um, ultimaster stent? I think today the stent technology, I mean, perhaps, you know, that, that is a theoretical question that perhaps, yes, you know, it is only unique to um, ultimaster stents. But I think today when you look at most stent platforms, they have been so refined and so improved um, that I think the minor differences in stent platforms now are not the reason for any events, clinical events or uh, subacute stent thrombosis or what have you. Uh, so I, I personally don't think so. But, you know, if in doubt, you put in an ultimaster, I guess. What are your thoughts, uh, Ankur? What do you do in your practice? No, I, I so again, um, a great summary, and, and thank you for sharing this with us. Uh, and congratulations once again on being a New England author. I agree with you. I mean, I think the, you know, again, this is a, a, a theoretical question. I, for the for the vast majority, a lot of the second generation drug eluting stent technologies that we use in practice are very similar. And um, you know, I I don't think I'm. I, I think the these findings are 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 fairly generalizable across all the stent platforms that are the, the second generation drug eluting stent platforms that are, um, you know, available for practicing interventionalist and clinical practice. Um, it's an extremely important question to answer because, you know, like we've talked about earlier in this episode, we encounter patients not infrequently, which have bleeding risks, which are not trivial. So, you know, the fact that you now have a trial, which, supports abbreviated DAP strategy in those patients, you know, is is both practice informing as well as practice changing. So, um, you know, again, uh, congratulations on on the publication and, and being a, an investigator for this important work. Um, any closing remarks, uh, Mirvat, for our listenership, for cardiologists, for early career, for women in cardiology? I mean, this is your platform and, and for Parallax. Uh, and I, again, you know, thank you for doing this for us. Again, thank you so much for this kind invitation. And um, there are just a, a couple of, of um, takeaway messages that I, I would take from the experience. One is we all need to look locally. 
um, you know, when I look at the investigators, investigators of the STOP DAPT trial, for example, um, you, we need to know our population. We need to know it well, and we need to know what are its unique features and so on. Um, I think looking at early career uh, from my part of the world, what I would suggest is get involved in research early and regional research, because this is where we lack data. What we are doing is sort of um, adopting data that may not be applicable to our part of the world. We don't actually know if our patients have the Asian paradox, for example. Um, it would be nice to have randomized data or at least registry data that helps us stratify our patients, understand our patients, and ultimately manage our patients. I think for women in cardiology, um, I would say seize the opportunity. And there are a lot of opportunities out there now because I think there is a genuine interest in being diverse, in being inclusive. And I think me being here today is a prime example of that. Um, so I, I'm most grateful for you to give me the platform to talk and say something today. Um, and I think that is the only thing I would say to women, find your passion, um, find your confidence. And as soon as you do that, you will find plenty of those knocking at your door because everybody has a, a genuine vested interest in being inclusive and in being diverse um, and in finding people with a different idea and people who think outside the box. Um, and, and that's really the only thing I, those are the two most important messages that I have to my colleagues, both men and women. Um, and again, thank you, Angkor, for being just very supportive to women in cardiology and to early career. And uh, thank you for this wonderful platform. Um, again, I repeat what I said way at the beginning of my, um, uh, you know, when we first started this episode. And it's easy to follow. It is always um, contemporary discussions, very easy um, topics and, and just fantastic faculty that you bring here. So, you know, keep it up. We enjoy it. We love what you do. Um, and, and it's definitely a, a platform that I recommend, again, for um, people who are trying to tie the science to their clinical practice. You'll find a lot of practical um, points being raised in, in um, Parallax. So thanks again. Oh, no, that, those are just, that's just incredible feedback, Mirabad. And coming from you, it means, personally means a lot to me because I know I put a lot of effort into um, into recording these episodes, into, you know, getting the faculty that everyone wants to listen to and then sort of post-processing and releasing these episodes on a bi-weekly basis. So, you know, feedback like this from you means means the world to me. So thank you for that. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. Thanks again for all the work that you do. And thanks again for being such a force and such a representation for, you know, not only women, but women of color, women of different, ethni uh, you know, different ethnicities, very varied backgrounds, uh, you know, women uh, from that part of the world. Um, and, and just, just frank, you know, quite frankly, just a, a solid interventional cardiologist. So again, thanks a lot. And um, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you very, very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening. <laughs>